is a Woodside Church podcast. Thank you. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Well, it's good to see you. That was good, wasn't it, this morning? Wasn't that wonderful? I'm not sure I need to say all of this now. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can prune as I go. I have been advised to try to be short because of the heat this morning. Um, I am shamelessly shoehorning in a message to the Wilderness series, which was not in the series as designed. Um, and this is just something that's been on my heart, I suppose, for the last few weeks. And the title I've given it is Coming Out of the Wilderness, with a question mark on the end. Um, and the reason the question mark is on the end, I'm looking at coming out of the wilderness, but I'm going to be doing it from the story of the Israelites when they failed to come out of the, Israel- of the, the wilderness, the first chance they got. Um, now this is, just to set the scene, back when we started the wilderness series, um, I got up here and I said, I believe we're in a season where, where we are as people matches where the preaching is going. And the wilderness is not the absence of God, it's not when God's distant, it's when he's preparing you for what he's got to come. Yeah? Um, and I firmly believe that we have been paralleling in the words we've got, the opportunities God's given us, that wilderness experience to be prepared for what comes next. Um, So we need to talk at some point about coming out of the wilderness. Um, So around a year after they came out of Egypt, the Israelites were camped in the desert of Paran. Um, Now they've been through the plagues, they've seen God bring plagues on Egypt and the Passover, they've seen him open the Red Sea, they've seen him save them as a nation. Uh, They've been to Sinai, they've seen God's glory descend on the mountain, and they've been given the law um, to live by. They've been led by God through the desert in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. They've been miraculously provided with food, manna, quail, and miraculously provided with water a couple of different times. And they've won a battle against a a tribe called the Amalekites. There's a lot gone on in that year. Um, And God had brought them now to a place called Kadesh Barnea, Nobody's quite sure exactly where it is, but it was on the southern border of the promised land. Canaan, as it was called then, Israel as we would know it now. And <clears throat> that's where we pick up the story. About a year, remember, after they've come out of Egypt. And I'm going to read quite a long chunk out of Numbers 13, which tells the story. And I'm going to be missing sections just to try and squeeze it in. So the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Then it lists them. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they walled? unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin, as far as Rehob, towards Libo Hamath. No idea where they were. But they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, various people living there. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes. 
At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, and they seem to have been big sort of warrior people, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men, Caleb was one of those who had gone into the land, one of the 12. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we'd died in Egypt or in this desert... Why is the Lord bringing us to this land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. And then there's a, a discussion between God and Moses about whether God should just wipe the people out and start again. I'm going to skip that bit. Um, but then the Lord is talking to Moses at the end of that, when Moses has won the argument, I'm not going to destroy my people, but as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he, land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back. So they're camped on the border, and God says, turn back set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea, back where you came from. <clears throat> and actually Caleb and Joshua, he later says, both Caleb and Joshua will make it into the land. I'm not going to read all of that because it's quite a lot of text. So that's the story. The Israelites got within sight of the promised land that God was leading them to and ended up turning away and God sent them back into the desert. Now, in 1 Corinthians, 
Paul says that the things that happened to the Israelites in the desert happened as examples for us to learn from. So I'm going to pick six things that I observe as we go through that passage and just tell them what you are, they are and then possibly round up at the end as how I think that applies to us. Now the first thing is not actually in that passage but I've got to say it before we say anything else. God saved his people through a sovereign work that he did without their help. Okay? When they, were, they went through the plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea, the people did none of that. God came, he sent them Moses, and he rescued them by his own sovereign and mighty acts. They didn't contribute. In fact, Moses, when they were stood on the banks of the Red Sea, said, stand still and watch the Lord deliver you. Okay? The Lord saves himself. You don't have to do anything to be saved by God. You just have to come and accept what he has already done on the cross that we sang about earlier. Okay, we've got to start from there um, because I'm going to talk about what we do. We've got to make that clear first. You don't do anything to make you good enough for God to save you. You're not involved in that except for saying, yes, Lord, save me. He does the rest. But these people were living under a promise from God. Genesis 17.8, God is talking to Abraham, the father of all of the Israelites. And he says, the whole land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. God did not promise they would wander in the desert. They promised that that land that they were on the border of would be theirs as a people. And then he said later on to Abraham, he said, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So this land is the promise that God has given them. You're going to live, and it's described sometimes as a rest in that land. You're going to settle there and I will be your God and I will bless you. And that is where my promise and my path to you lies. Very key to who the nation of Israel are today and were then is that land that God promised them. Now, God saved them by a sovereign act of his power, but the promise was very much an opt-in thing. They could not go into that. They could choose not to go into that promise, as they did the first time they got to the border of the land. They chose that they weren't going to follow God and they weren't going to go into the promise that he'd um, prepared for them. them. God brings them to the border gives them a taste of what's in there. Look at all the good things. The spies come back and say, it's wonderful in there. And then he says, okay, so now it's time to gird yourself up as an army and get in and take it. And they look at it and they say, "Mm, that looks a bit costly. That looks hard. There are giants there. We're going to have to fight. We don't fancy that. In fact, I think we prefer our old lives back in slavery. Yeah, we were slaves, but it was sort of comfortable slavery compared with this. Um, And so they end up turning away. And and God eventually says, no, if you're not up for the cost of my promise to you, then you'll just have to turn away because that's what it costs to get into the promised land. Now, they stay God's people. I mean, there's that debate with Moses, which is very hard to understand what's going on there. But they remain God's people. He stays with them in the wilderness. 
Um, he miraculously provides them still with food and water. And it says in the uh, New Testament, their clothes didn't wear out while they were in the wilderness. He guides them with the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. He's not absent from them. They're still his covenant people. But they're not in the promised land. They're not where they should have been. And so what we learn from that, I haven't been calling out the numbers of the, these observations. And number four, we've got that far, is you can stay in the wilderness, but you're not meant to. Yeah. So the wilderness, as I said, I believe the wilderness is sort of a model for where we are now. It's good. You know, God is good. God is here. He's doing stuff among us. It's a model for where we are now. But it, the wilderness is where God purifies you as his people and prepares you for the battle to come, to really, really get into what he's promised for you, the blessings he has for you. It's not necessarily an unpleasant place. It can be more pleasant to be in the wilderness than to be in the battle but it's not where God meant you to be. And the Israelites come to a fork in the road. Down that way, that's God's plan. At the end of it, I, yeah, we can see that there's some wonderful stuff down there, but getting there is scary and costly. And back here, well, it's not as good, but it's comfortable and it's not going to hurt us. It's not that challenging. And their decision, we're going to stay here. Now, actually, they regretted it. And after God had said, right, turn around and go away, a bunch of them got together and tried to storm a, a city in Canaan. And Moses said, don't go, God's not with you anymore. Um, and they got soundly thrashed and driven, driven back. When it actually came to it, when people went in with faith 40 years later under Joshua, they discovered that God fought for them. We think of the story of Jericho, the first place they went. Yes, they were ready for battle and they went in, but God did almost all the work. What you've got to do, you've got to march right around the city and then shout. Oh, what are these swords for? Well, they're cleaning up afterwards. Yeah? <laughs> um, so you can stay in the wilderness. You're not meant to. Number five. God's plan was a corporate plan, not a personal plan. Now, Luke was in this, in this sort of area three or four weeks ago, and Martin was there last week. We are so individualistic as a culture and as a society nowadays. And that's harmful. We are individualistic as a society to a harmful degree. God's plan was for his people as a whole. Think about poor old Caleb and Joshua. They were up for it. Yes, God, we are absolutely for it. We're going to go in there, we're going to take our swords, and we're going to go. But nobody came, was willing to come with them. And Caleb and Joshua's destiny, if you like to put it that way, was postponed 40 years. Because God's plan was for the people as a whole. Yes, there are plans for individuals within that, but his plan is for a family, for a church, for a people um, to be moving together and doing that battle. Because you can't, as individuals, win that battle, but you can as a church. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, sometimes that's us as individuals representing the church, but it is the church as a body, as a people, that will storm the gates of hell. Yeah? There's a very popular verse nowadays that people um, quote a lot um, in Jeremiah, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The you in that verse is plural. He was talking to the whole of his people as they went off into exile in, in, um, in Babylon. And actually, if you read on, the plan he had for them was to come back to the land later. He said, I'm going to bless you, when you're in Babylon, 
You're going to prosper. It's not going to hurt you. This is what I am doing to you. You're going to be safe. But then in 70 years, I'm going to call you back. And you'll come back into my land and be part of my people once again. Now, if you were around back, back in the autumn last year, I talked about this a bit in the Nehemiah series. When it came to it, 70 years later, God was as good as his word. And he said, he changed the government, changed the policy. And the king then said, okay, all of you exiles, you can go home. You can go home and build Jerusalem. You can now go and be part of God's plan in that land and that promise that he gave you. And 50,000 people went, which meant that 1,950,000 people stayed. It's 97.5% of God's people who had that call. They had it written down in the prophecies of Jeremiah. They would have been reading it. 97.5% of them said, actually, it's a dangerous journey. When we get there, we'll have to restart with the land. It's all overgrown. It's been overgrown for 70 years. There's nobody living there. We'll have to build our houses. We'll have to build Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, all that stuff. We're quite comfortable. We quite like it where we are. And so only, you know, 50,000 sounds like quite a lot until you put a percentage on it. Two and a half percent. I find that desperately, desperately sad. And that almost two million people, they disappear from God's history. They don't appear here again. Uh, unless there's, there's some doubt about the dating of Esther, as far as I can tell. Maybe that was those people. But that was God saving them. They're not really contributing anything. God still saved them as his people in, his, in the book of Esther. Um, but they disappear. And the rest of God's plan that's recorded in here is from that 50,000 and the people who were already in the land. So God's plan was corporate um, and not merely personal. God does have a plan for your life, but it's in the context of here, yeah? or wherever else he may take you. Um, <clears throat> it's always in the context of my body, my people. Think of all the places in the New Testament where it's a body, where a body connected together by these joining ligaments. You can't do without that part. Final one. Um, one thing that we see um, in this story is the limitations of leadership. Now, leadership... Godly leadership is wonderful. Um, Jeremiah, God, God gives Jeremiah, the Israelites a promise through Jeremiah, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. You study shepherds in the Bible, it's wonderful. Godly leadership is a gift. We are well led here. Um, I suppose it's worth me saying that because very often it's, it's the leaders of the church standing here and can't really say it themselves. You are well led as a people. You've got people people in the elders and in the senior leadership team who are looking for what does God want us to do? Where should we go? And they're desperate for God to move and for you to be fulfilled in your callings and all this sort of stuff. You're well led here. But all Moses could do, Moses was an astounding leader, really astonishing. All he could do was bring them to the border and say, God says, that's the land. Shall we go and get it? That was as far as he could do it. He was great, really good leader, but he couldn't do it on his own. We have a really strange, contradictory cultural relationship with leadership, um, which says, you're wrong, it's awful, why are you there anyway? Tends to ignore leaders, and then when things go wrong, it's all their fault. Yeah? Are you familiar with that? I mean, um, whatever you think of Boris as a person, you can see that in the media and how he's handled, how he's been treated, um, going back into COVID, is that we just, we just don't understand leadership. 
Um, you can't tell me what to do. You're impinging on my freedom. And then when it all goes south, who's to blame? Not me. Anyway, there is a limitation to what the leaders can do without the people responding and getting together and saying, yes, I hear you, and we're going to do that. So those are the six, six things I noticed reading that passage. What about us today? Well, as I say, I believe that we're living in a wilderness, period. Now, that's not absence of God. That's God preparing us. And I believe that because I believe that God is coming with something for us, that there is a, a pouring out of God's spirit that is going to come. I haven't got a time scale. Sorry, I'd love to be saved by Christmas, but I haven't got a time scale. But for two years, God has been talking to me, as I, as I preached before, about rivers of living water. And it's not just, you need these. It's, I'm ready with this. I'm ready to pour this out. Are you ready? What promises are we living with ourselves? People of Israel had the, the promised land. I think we live with this one. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days. And then that moves on. That moves on into what we do. Have you noticed Isaiah 60 and 61 floating around lately? I have. People have read from them. People have quoted them when they haven't explicitly said. They've just been floating around. Have a read of Isaiah 61. We all know that one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news, to bind up the brokenhearted and so on. And at that point, do you know what comes after that bit that Jesus read in the synagogue? It describes what those people will then do. So I haven't got this in my notes, so I can't read it, but they will build up the ancient ruins. They will be my people. Um, all that sort of stuff. It's about what those people that God has redeemed then go and do. That's, I think, the promise that we are living with. And how do we respond? Because if that's our promise, and we're currently in the wilderness, we can get it, or we can turn away. Now, Psalm 95 talks about that wilderness experience. And it says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as you did at a couple of places in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did for 40 years. Two things there. Hear his voice and don't harden your hearts. Now, this is written in Hebrew, um, which means that that word hear is not just hear, it's hear and take in and obey. Um, hear his voice with a soft heart. What hardened the Israelites' heart was the fear of the cost they had to pay and the desire to just sit back in their comfort. What hardened the hearts of the Israelites when they were in Babylon, coming back in the days of Ezra, was the cost they would have to pay, the work they would have to do, and the fact that they were really quite comfortable as they were. What do we have to fear? Not so much as many, play pe many people in the world from following God, but our society is increasingly against our faith. Um, and if we go for it, we'll be cancelled, we'll be ridiculed, we'll lose friends, we'll maybe lose jobs. I mean, that's about where we are at the moment. The countries in the world where you could lose your life. Yeah, but that's it for us. There are consequences. Um, and our comfort 
It's all bound up in our jobs and our houses and our leisure and our entertainment and all of these things that we'll sit down and do, maybe instead of praying. It will mean God wants our time and our attention and our devotion. It will mean work. It will mean giving things up. It will mean sacrificing. It will impinge on your freedom. There will be a commitment that says you're not free to do everything that you might want to do. You'll have to give some things up. But we must hear his, hear his voice and respond with soft hearts. So are you hearing his voice? And how have you responded? Tim said, you know, when, when Tim spoke to us a couple of weeks ago, he said that God had spoken to him about moving to Bedford and he said, if you don't respond, I can't do what I plan in Bedford. Yeah? Now, we have seen a picture of this this morning. This was great. Because James said, if you want prayer, come up and be prayed for. And then Ruth said, I feel God telling me that I need to, to sort of break into that, get you going, respond to it. Yes. And then what happened? Other people come forward for it. Yeah. And that was good. I hope, I mean, I prayed for a couple of people. I think they're going to be great men of God. Can't see them at the moment, but they already are. And they're going to be. Um, but that response was what God was after this morning. And Ruth could have sat there and said, no, that's, that's, that's a bit silly. I'll look a bit odd. Yeah. And so there are things that God won't do. There are promises that won't come fulfilled. There are plans he has that won't happen unless you're one of those that's responding, that's taking what he says and doing it. Um, now, some of you are. It's very easy to bring this as a sort of condemnatory thing. I know there are people here who are doing exactly that. And well done. Well done. You're following God. And I think God would just say, well done, keep it up. But I've got a couple of questions. What words from God in the last little while have changed your life because you've responded to them? Can you, can you say, that changed me, that changed me, that changed me, that I heard the word that came from God? Let me ask you some specifics. First week, we came back from lockdown, the reboot series. Martin's message was everybody in ministry, everybody serving everybody else. We actually had a verse in Corinthians that's about that. When, when we meet together, people bringing things. We had that three weeks in a row independently in those first four weeks. One in a preach and two, two words. I mean, that's, that's an unusual verse for people to bring at any time. That was the Holy Spirit saying, this is how I want you to be. I want everybody in ministry and in the gathering. I want everybody contributing. Um, did you hear it? Are you doing it? It takes some time. It's not always... Oh, God will give me something in the middle of the, of, the, of the meeting if he wants to. It's sit down on Friday and say, God, is there anything you want me to do to bring on, on, on Sunday? It, it takes some effort and time to build that into your life. Have you heard the call to prayer? From back in sort of February, March time, the elders said, God is calling us to pray. Ruth said, God is calling us to contend for his promises. Have you heard that? How has it changed what you do? Have you started praying? I know some have. It's great. You go to the prayer meetings, there's not a lot of people there. And I know not everybody can make them, so I don't know what's happening. But the call on this people was pray, pray passionately, contend for my promises, and do it corporately. Have you heard that one? Are you responding? Let me just rattle through a few more. 
Are you destroying your idols? Did you hear David Devonish's word? Did you think that was a good word and you went away and then you haven't done anything about it? Or have you spent time saying, what are my idols? What do I put on too high a pedestal? What do I need to destroy? Ruth brought a word a few weeks ago. Repent. There's a need for repentance. To identify some things in your life and repent. Have you responded to that? Debbie, Debbie De Silva, can't see you, Debbie, said, God is going to do something new and uncomfortable. Have you pondered that to get yourself ready for what God might do that you might find uncomfortable? Brian Gibbons came to the microphone and said, God wants us to get rid of the noise in our lives that stops us hearing him. Have you responded? Peter, Peter Solomon, let's focus on the presence of God in our lives, having him near, having him in us, having his presence with us. Martin, last week, seven things. Can you remember them? Can you remember what our number one priority is from last week? In case you can't, it's making disciples. You see, God is speaking. He's speaking all the time. And that's, that's just, I'm sorry if, I'm, if I missed out something you said. That's just things... I can't go and list everything that's happened in the last two years. God is speaking, he's calling us, he's asking us to prepare for what comes next. Yeah. Get ready to leave the wilderness. I think we've seen a bit of that this morning. Yeah. James's heart for that to happen in worship, that sort of thing, is coming out of the wilderness, I believe. Now, if you're thinking, I've forgotten all those words, or some of them, the answer is community. The answer to that is to be in a community of people. And maybe your community groups, maybe other groups that you can get with that say, what did God say? What do you think that means for you? People talk about accountability very lightly, but that's what it is. It's other people who will be there for you and say, you can just get together with and say, how am I going to respond to those words? Um, because there was a dreadful song back in the 70s some of, uh, the, the theology was awful, the music was awful, the, uh, the words were pretty much awful, but it had one redeeming feature. It had a memorable first line of the chorus, which was, take another lap around Mount Sinai. And it was all about this. It was about, I've called you, if you will respond, if you will obey, if you won't rebel, then I have got such things for you. But if you don't respond, go and take another lap around the mountain in the desert. So I think what I'm here to say this morning is not to be, as I say, I don't want to be condemn condemnatory. I think I do want to be encouraging, possibly even convicting, because I know, you know, I don't listen all the time. There are many times in my life where I've sat and not let anything um, go in, not let anything touch me. But I think what I'm here to say is get ready to enter the promised land. Take some of this seriously um, look at what God is saying how can I build that into my life because that's how he takes us into what he's got for us and it will, it will be a fight but God will fight for you I think I'm going to end it there and I'm going to leave Richard to do whatever he wants to um, to tidy up thanks Jonathan listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.